This is Innovating a Bright Future. Welcome, welcome. I am your host, Avery Kreiwold, with Innovating a Bright Future, where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technology driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. For this week's episode, I am talking to Olia Irzak, the CEO of Frost Methane. Frost Methane is an interesting company because it is 100% devoted to reducing emissions. As the name suggests, methane emissions. It's unique in this way because unlike a renewable energy utility, it doesn't create anything or sell a product to a consumer. Instead, because it pulls emissions out of the atmosphere, it generates carbon credits, which it can then sell to companies who are polluting more than what they are allowed. We get into that system a bit more throughout this episode. In California, it's known as cap and trade. I'll put some links in the show notes to learn more, and we will also be doing a bonus on carbon markets near the end of this season. But for now, enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome to the show, Olya Irzak. You are the co-founder and the CEO of Frost Methane. And your company is, as the name suggests, you're looking at reducing methane emissions. You're doing that through a variety of means, and you're trying to reduce methane, turn it into CO2 for now, which is still a greenhouse gas. But if you don't know this, methane is much, much, much worse than CO2 in terms of the warming effect that it has on the earth. So what else can you tell me about your company and yourself as the CEO? Thanks. Super happy to be here. Uh, so what, what frost methane does is we find really concentrated and continuous sources of methane so that we can install a device and kind of have a set it and forget it situation, right? So we install a device, we flare off the methane, and we monitor to figure out exactly what impact we're having. And all of that data comes up through either satellite or cell so that we know the impact we have on the environment. And that gets bid into carbon offset markets which pay you for reduction of warming effects. So some, some sources you might think about are the concentrated methane and the permafrost. So we started, that's where we started, separate from the diffuse, kind of the slow biological decomposition of the permafrost. That's a separate issue. Okay, okay. Right away, quick blurb about permafrost. First of all, permafrost is basically just parts of the ground that remain frozen all year. It's pretty self-explanatory, really. Why frost methane is concerned with this is because as global temperatures rise every year, it gets warmer and warmer, more and more of this permafrost is melting. This is a problem because when the permafrost melts, the organic matter, the plants, soils, and organisms that have been frozen, they could have been frozen recently or they could have been frozen decades ago, thaw out and they start decomposing. When they decompose, the stored carbon from their physical form is released back into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide or methane, and that's what frost does. It collects that methane so that it doesn't deposit into the atmosphere and cause further warming. Landfills are kind of a, a very consistent source of methane because of the organics in it, and uh, certain types of mining actually emit quite a bit of methane, and that's where we think some of the lower hanging fruit are in, in the methane problem. And as, as some of you might know, methane is about 16 to 20% of the warming that we experience today, and we think it's some of the easier stuff to mitigate. 
That makes a lot of sense. So yeah, we're going to go into a bit of what exactly methane is right now. And as you said, it's much worse for the climate than some of the other main greenhouse gases than we think about, like CO2. When we think about CO2 as the main emission that's impacting global climate change, methane, it's much, much worse at the actual warming of the earth than that. So on that note, what is methane? Where does it come from? And why is it so bad? Why yeah, do we need to worry great, about it? Yeah, great question. So methane instantaneously, uh, as you said, traps a lot more heat than CO2. It's got a shorter half-life in the atmosphere than CO2 does. And the way people trade off different warming gases against each other is essentially they take 100 years and they look at how much each molecule of methane that's emitted right now even with its half-life of decomposition, kind of like multiplying those probabilities, over 100 years, how much heat is it going to trap? You know, a hypothetical molecule likely to trap. And then compare it to the heat that CO2 traps. And so if you look at the 100 years, the latest IPCC reports that methane is somewhere between 28 and 34 times worse than CO2. There's interesting alternative ways of making that comparison. For example, discount rates, which is the way that financial bits of society how they make trade-offs between present and future. And so there is there's a very interesting idea from a professor at the University of Boston that, maybe that's too much detail, um, overlays, <laughs> overlays the discount rate over the half-life of the various gases and then comes up with a, with a slightly different number for, for how much worse it is. But essentially, over 100 years, it traps more, more than CO2. Part of the reason that methane is interesting is both that it provides, you know, 16 to 20% of the warming that we experience today. It's also a lot of the potential feedback loops, some of the kind of reinforced uh, loops of climate change. A lot of those are related to methane. So that's another reason that people pay attention to it. And the other one is that it's really easy to destroy, right? So burning it is one way of turning it into CO2. It's also an energy molecule. So there could be an economic benefit where you turn it into electricity or something else, for example. As far as sources of methane, so people have heard about like oil and gas, you know, natural gas is methane, uh, 99% methane at least. So leaks in oil and gas is a big one. Cow burps, rice um, on the natural side, wetlands, coal mining and landfills are sort of the main ones. Out of those, we only handle the ones that are concentrated. So for example, cow burps, you know, super, super important. And there are people that are working on cow feed additives or on not eating cows or artificial meat or meat grown in the labs. There's lots and lots of ways of tackling each one of these problems. Yeah, and I think that there's lots of great companies working on it. So you said that methane is, I think, 20 to 30 times worse than CO2 as a metric to compare. I know you guys are mostly focused on methane. What are some of the other greenhouse gases that we're being faced with and how do they compare? Yeah, that's a great question. So nitrous oxide is a big one. So it's about 5% contribution to the warming. About 75% of the nitrous oxide emissions are related to fertilizer, right? So some process of applying fertilizer and then that through soil processes turning into nitrous oxide. And I believe the other 25% are from rayon manufacturing. The other one to really watch out for is refrigerants, right? So essentially the things inside your air conditioners and your fridges. Some of those have are like a thousand times or more more potent per molecule than CO2. So they contribute, they may not contribute that much because we have much fewer of them, 
But any leaks in your HVAC systems, your refrigerants are really, really bad, as well as improper disposal. So those are definitely things to watch out for. And nitrous oxide is, I believe, something like 320 times more potent than CO2 per molecule. All right. So how did you guys decide when you started this journey of your startup of frost methane? How did you decide to deal with methane? So a few things, right? The first one is every time I think about a project, I think about if it was successfully solved, how much of climate change are we solving? And then divided by the number of people working on this problem, right? So kind of that ratio is the expected contribution that I can have to a field, you know, assuming that it's solvable. So I I first look at that and methane had a reasonably high impact potential. And also we had an idea, you know, we come from a mechanical electrical software background. So there was like an engineering solution as opposed to, let's say, the cow things, which are predominantly biotech solutions. So we had the skill set that was relevant. And then there was a business model that we could do to scale. Right. So essentially, we, we had a particular idea for a solution of this problem, you know, of the back of the envelope looked like it could make money, which would then reinvest into being able to scale and, and, and deploy this on multiple sites. But essentially, like a process that I literally do every like three or four years is just look at where emissions are coming from, see what exists, see what doesn't exist. But I think maybe I can contribute to and just go through a very, very long list of these things to try to figure out where, uh, you know, we can make an impact. Yeah, it was kind of a calculated process, I would say. Right. That's very cool. That's interesting how you go through the whole process. It's not like you just saw something and you went for it. You had to actually calculate it out and you figured out how you can make the biggest impact, which is something that's very fascinating to me, how everyone can have their own impact. Totally. And I think that the the second story, a little bit of like what led us to the natural sources, which is where we originally started, is that there was a new phenomena that was being observed in the Arctic of concentrated methane emissions rather than diffuse methane emissions, right? So essentially lots of methane coming out of one spot. That was something that sort of triggered what can we do about this? Because this was something that is still not, that hasn't really been quantified specifically. So sometimes looking at like, where do we not have enough information is also a good way of saying, this is maybe something where where we should investigate further. Right. So there's a lot of demand to fix this, this problem of methane. It's a big problem that's contributing a lot to climate change. And you could say there's a low supply of people working on it, which is where you fill that spot, I guess, right? <laughs> I like that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You mentioned that your group, your kind of team at Frost Methane is from a very engineering focused background. So I want to get into what exactly your technology does. How do you transform methane into CO2, which is a much less potent greenhouse gas? So the actual conversion part is actually kind of the easy part. We basically burn it. There are some tricks to have complete burn under a variety of scenarios. But the fundamental thing is just burning it, right, takes CH4, adds oxygen, turns it into water and CO2. So one molecule of methane goes to one molecule of CO2. The rest of our device, which is probably the more complex part, is very, very precise measurement of what's happening. So flow rates, methane composition, completeness of combustion um, at really high sampling rates in order to sure, to make sure that we know exactly what our impact is because we get paid strictly for the impact. 
And then the third component is being able to collect that methane from wherever it comes and put it through our device. So an example of a deployment that we did in the Arctic is this methane is just bubbling up from like a lake (laughs) and our device is like floating in the middle of a lake on top of this and collecting that methane that's coming from, let's call it three jacuzzi sized area, collecting all of that into the device, handling high level changes, high water level changes, um, you know, anchoring it on top of that. Lots of, you know, difficulties of working with gases and water. And then, you know, it freezes, like the entire region freezes over for six months out of the year. So lots of challenges, lots of really interesting design challenges there that, you know, our super amazing engineering team has handled spectacularly well. So I I learn from them every day. So the actual conversion part is pretty easy. You just basically burn it. How do you actually collect it? Is it I'm envisioning almost like a parachute where the gas is coming into the parachute and then it's going through some kind of system where it gets lit on fire and then burns. Is it similar to that or how are you capturing it? When we just just started, I bought an old military parachute on eBay. Think of it more as a funnel than a parachute. The problem with a parachute, it's got a top, like a flat top rather than a funnel top. And a lot of that, you end up with a lot of lifting power for the gas. But yeah, I think your your thing is pretty similar. There's some trickiness around knocking out moisture that comes with the gas. But essentially, you're totally right. There is a, a funnel, a meter, and a lighter was the way that I had originally envisioned it. Of course, my team corrected me to show how much more complicated it is. But conceptually, this is exactly what it is on those natural lake sites. In other sites, like, you know, in landfills, the traditional way of doing it is literally drilling into the landfill as if you're drilling for like oil and gas and put a little bit of suction to make sure all the methane comes from one spot. So it basically, the answer is it sort of depends on the source, how we were collected. So for these rigs, you mentioned that you get paid based on the impact that you have. You might not be able to tell me everything about the economics behind that because it's your company and I'm sure some things are meant to be more discreet. But what can you tell me about like, where are you getting the funds for these and how are you actually making it economic? Because it's not like you're producing anything, right? Mm-hmm. Totally. So this is where carbon markets come in, right? So carbon markets pay for reduction of warming. They basically think of them as like pollution reduction markets, essentially. And the reason that they're markets is it's just an abstraction to have a bunch of entrepreneurs compete for who can mitigate climate change the cheapest. I can be like, hey, I think we should burn this methane in the Arctic. And somebody else is like, no, I think we should be collecting refrigerants in developing worlds and, uh, you know, destroying those. And then, you know, we see who can produce a lot of this in like the cheapest way possible, right? And so it's a market in the sense that where we as a society allocate resources is based on this particular competition of who could do it the cheapest which I think is, by the way, super, super cool. Markets, like, like market mechanisms, I think are very efficient. And so I'm really excited that they're being applied outside of just like production of physical goods. That's kind of great. There are several different kinds of carbon markets, right? There's voluntary markets, there's compliance markets. Depending on the source and on the geographic location, we can put them in various places. But essentially, the way this works is we have this reduction. There are four registries in the world that say whether these that we need to prove to that this reduction counts if we're the first people to ever do this kind of thing. And then for every single project, there's a third-party auditor that is certified by the registries 
that goes out and physically inspects and compares their findings to your digital findings to make sure that you're doing what you say you're doing. So there's pretty serious auditing and, of course, legal repercussions um, if you make a mistake. And at the same time, there's these registries that sort of run the whole process. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I've been meaning to do a bonus episode all about carbon markets because, like you, I find it completely fascinating that we can create a marketplace of carbon reduction, or not just carbon reduction, but emissions reductions. And I think it's very interesting. I haven't done it yet, but I'm doing it soon. And I think it's going to be fascinating and very difficult to understand because it seems like such a complex system. Yeah, I think I think that would be a super fun episode. People ask me about this like all the time. And compliance markets are really different than voluntary markets. So I think it's worth talking to purchasers in compliance because they have to reduce their emissions or buy it from someone else that can in case they can't, right? Like say if you have a concrete uh, manufacturing plant, right? That's not something that you can rebuild with a vastly different technology overnight. There's probably lots of places where you can reduce a little bit, but if you can't reach the cap that's been set out for you, it can get pretty difficult. So that's when somebody else maybe can reduce beyond what the, the regulated cap is, and then that access can be traded, right? So that's when the where the trade uh, from cap and trade comes from. And then some small fraction of that can be offsets even from outside the territory. So California cap and trade allows offsets from anywhere in the US, but not outside the US. Yeah, it's pretty tricky stuff. Uh, but I think it's a very important mechanism. Right. Yeah, definitely. Can you just give me a quick rundown of the difference between volunteer markets and compliance markets? Compliance is as it says, you, the company has to. So a company in a certain jurisdiction gets, you know, let's say a cap, like the maximum emissions that they can produce is X or some definition of X. And if they're producing more than that, they are absolutely regulated to get to their cap, potentially buying credits from another company that has managed to reduce below their cap or buying offsets otherwise, or, or you have a, a large fine. But essentially it is, a certain geographical return that that has agreed to cap its full emissions at a certain at a certain amount. And then voluntary markets are companies that are doing it because it's the right thing to do or for PR reasons. But essentially nobody's making them have zero or lower footprint, but they've decided that that's the right thing to do for whatever their internal reasons are. And so they're uh, similarly getting to zero is really is, is really difficult. And so they're sponsoring projects in other places in order to sort of like they're giving their money to reduce emissions somewhere else in order to reach uh, net zero. Uh, so that's kind of the volunteer where nobody nobody's making it, the company do them, but they do it anyways. And those markets are, there's a lot more types of reductions that are typically allowed in volunteer markets than in, in compliance markets. So things in some ways get trialed in the volunteer markets and if they look like a very good method, that's very difficult to game, right? Because how good a method is, isn't just, can you reduce it for cheaper? But it's like, can you be game? Like, can we have this auditor that can very easily tell the difference between frost methane and evil frost methane, right? Like, let's say we had a twin company. The auditor needs to be able to tell the difference reasonably easily and reasonably cheaply. And so if a method doesn't allow you to do that, then it's not a great method. And so a lot of the stuff gets trial and error in the volunteer markets. And then the stuff that sort of stands the test of time, often gets adopted by the compliance ones. So for example, California cap and trade allows only, I believe, seven types of offsets, while as the volunteer markets have, you know, depending which one, but basically have at least like 40 or 60 methods. 
Alright, a lot just happened, so I'm going to summarize that section really quick. There are some areas of differing sizes that have what are called carbon markets or cap-and-trade systems. California has one for the whole state, and the EU, a collective of multiple countries, also has one of these systems. These are compliance markets. There is a maximum amount of emissions allowed each year for California or the EU or whatever, and then each company within that area is allowed a certain number of credits, a pollution allowance, if you will. If they pollute a lot, more than what they are allowed, that's when companies like Frost Methane come in, who generate credits by mitigating emissions and can sell those credits to big polluters. There are very strict rules and close monitoring to ensure that the companies both buying and selling credits are doing it properly. Volunteer markets are when a company isn't within an area with a carbon market or aren't included in that system, but they choose to participate anyways. The best example I can think of is Tentry, one of my favorite brands, Link in the show notes to check out their products if you want. Because they rely heavily on being known as the sustainability brand, first off, they reduce their emissions and waste to be as efficient as possible. And then they can buy carbon credits on top of that so that their company is technically not emitting anything because they're paying someone else to take care of whatever emissions is left over, even after they've maximized their efficiency. That's kind of surprising that there's only seven types of those offsets do you know them off by heart? Could you give me a couple of examples? <laughs> I think so. There's um, large-scale forestry, urban forestry, coal and trona, mine methane, rice methane, uh, refrigerant mitigation, and I'm sure I'm forgetting one or two, but at least those. Okay, so by name, there's a couple of methane offsets in there. So obviously, this is this is something that's being focused on. Yeah, and methane is very easy to verify, right? Because there's enough concentrated areas of it that you can put it into the device and measure it and it's great, right? So there's lots of promising things like carbon soil sequestration that are harder to measure. Um, There's folks at Yardstick that are trying to change that to make it like really easy to measure. Uh, But until that happens, there's always going to be some questions about it, right? It's also uh, some of these things are reversible, like the forest can get cut down eventually or go up in flames in a way that methane that's been burned doesn't magically recombine back into methane. So it's it's a very permanent and very easy to measure solution. So I think that is one of the reasons why compliance markets really like the higher order gases, because it's they're just easier to measure and prove that you've done what you said you did. Exactly. The forest could get cut down or go up in flames. Forests also don't grow instantly, and the carbon absorption that trees do is a slow process over the course of their lifetime. So planting trees really isn't the best way to go about mitigating climate change. I know it's something that comes up a lot in headlines, it's one of the most popular things to do, but it's not the best. It's still a great thing to do, it's a step in the right direction for sure, but it's not the best because it takes a long time to actually take effect And a lot can happen during that time that prevents the trees from actually pulling all the carbon out of the air that they are supposed to. All right, that makes a lot of sense. I want to move on a little bit from the carbon markets now. I, Like I said, it's just so interesting and I haven't delved so far into it as I have some other things. Your technology at Frost Methane, you take methane and you convert it into CO2. So you're greatly reducing the impact of that methane, but you're still obviously producing that greenhouse gas of CO2. 
Have you seen any other methods or technologies or do you see a future in frost methane when you can use the methane or the carbon dioxide that you get from that methane to create something completely new and get rid of what's left of those emissions? Or is it kind of as far as it's going to go, do you think? That's a great question. And the, que- and the answer is always depends on the cost. And the cost sometimes depends on the volume that you get per site. So one example of methane being used for something else is there's, I believe, at least a couple of companies like Mango Materials that take methane and make it into plastics. So there's things like that, but their plant size is non-trivial, right? And so if you've got a methane flow that is large enough, maybe it'll be worth it for them to come out and do something with it. But if you don't have large enough methane flows, then you know if you have to pipe together lots of different small sources, then just the cost of the pipes are going to absolutely kill the economics. So I think that there is definitely some things around materials, around generating electricity. We have a partner that mines Bitcoin, that if the source is large enough and stable enough, we can burn it in a generator and sell them the electricity. They will come out to some remote areas, but the source has to be large enough. And so I do think that there's, there's potentially some mineralization in the coal seam itself that could happen with the CO2. For all of that, the question is cost. Like, what can we do at $15 a ton of, of CO2 equivalent, which is, for example, the prices in the California carbon markets versus, you know, what we'd be able to do if it's $40 a ton, right? So those things are pretty, are pretty different. I think for now, if I have an extra, you know, because we're small and getting started, if I have an extra dollar, I will put that dollar into finding a new methane source and mitigating that. But once I've got, once we've got many, many sources, right, let's say we are in a future where we have 100 sources where we're flaring the methane, the first thing we're going to do is call on the local communities to say, what do you want to, like, would you like free heat or electricity or cheap electricity? Free is going to be hard because you've got to maintain the generators. And there's some stuff that we come up with, but there's also some things that the communities come up with that will work in one place, but not another. So like many years ago, there was a man in Illinois that used the heat from burning the methane to put into a greenhouse gas to grow tomatoes in the winter. Winter tomatoes were really valuable before supply chains just brought it from from southern areas. So that's something, you know, that's amazing and like not not something, you know, we don't want to be in the tomato growing business for like one location, but maybe somebody else does. There was uh, a man from Kentucky that has uh, the Appalachian Renewal Project that had given us an idea on uh, a maple syrup production facility that was nearby and needed the heat potentially. I think there is lots of places where we might be able to make productive use of it. And I think it's going to get the most interesting once we've ran it, uh, each source for, let's say, a year so that we can say, how much does it fluctuate over the year, right? Because that's obviously really important to have a steady stream. And what amount can we guarantee? And is it declining over time and that kind of stuff? So once we've characterized the sources, I think we can make lots of partnership with local third parties to make the best use of it. And in some cases, I do think mineralization is possible, but that that starts being a question of, of, of how much money do we have to spend per project. That's not the first time CO2 mineralization has come up, and I have no idea what it is, so I looked it up, and from what I found, it turns out it's basically just carbon capture. It's taking carbon dioxide and reacting it with other minerals or chemicals to create a new material that doesn't allow the carbon to escape into the atmosphere and continue to contribute to global warming. Gotcha. So there's definitely opportunities. There's definitely potential. We just haven't 
gotten to that space yet. So we still need to keep working on it and getting, getting better and better at it, which is what you guys are working on. Exactly. And having more and more sources that we're, we, we anyways have to measure them extremely precisely for the carbon offset markets, but like more sources that are really well characterized so that we can give this characterization to other people and then see if there's anything that scales across our sites or whether the solution is just going to be very location specific or very, very methane type specific, right? Because a lot of times it's not just pure methane that's coming out. Sometimes there's methane and some nitrogen or some CO2 that's totally okay for some processes and not okay for others. That precise characterization, I think, is a good, and as many as many sources as we can, that's like the really good first step. But we really are hoping that in the future we'll be able to get rid of that last 4% of the warming that's left. Awesome. Well, I think that's all of the longer questions that I had for you. I just have a couple of short ones for you to answer kind of as fast as you can if you're up for that. Yeah, sounds great. Sounds fun, actually. <laughs> all right, perfect. My first question is, how important is reducing methane emissions to overall climate change movement? I think proportional to the amount of warming it causes. So I would say 16 to 20% important. That's a great <laughs> answer. Very calculated, just like everything else that you guys are working on. <laughs> That's what you get for interviewing an engineer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why I like engineering. That's how my brain thinks too. My next question, is carbon capture a viable option for climate action? Maybe as a second option to take care of the excess CO2 that you guys are emitting after you burn the methane. What do you think of carbon capture? I definitely think that it's a really important tool. The question is how big of a slice of the solution it's going to end up being. And I think the, what will determine the answer to that is how cheaply people can make it. So I know of companies that are aiming at like $50 a ton. Um, I don't think I know anybody that's like quite there yet. But I think if we can get there, it will be quite a large slice of the solution. While as if it's going to be at $200 a ton, it will be a smaller slice of the solution. And maybe it will help mitigate some of the harder to decarbonize sectors, like, for example, aviation, aviation fuels, for especially for long distance. That's going to take some time. And so while we're taking that time, it'll be cheaper to just capture the CO2. And I think that there's some great companies that are working really, really hard at it. So it will definitely be a part of the solution and how big will be determined by the cost, the cost that they will reach. So I'm really, really excited to be watching this uh, huge drop in costs that we've seen over the last couple of years in that. So a pretty optimistic outlook that it'll have at least some part to play in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the carbon markets are really great in that whatever is the cheapest thing is, is, is going to win up to the amount that we need and the amount that we need. Some bits of it are going to be super expensive, right? Like long distance flight, I think is the canonical uh, example, even though there are some companies that are working even on decarbonizing that, which is fabulous. But that's longer time horizon. And, and you know, we'll see what the cost ends up being. So when you look at climate action, obviously, you took an action to start Frost Methane, to co-found Frost Methane. Now you guys are having a very large impact. How important is individual action in climate mitigation when you compare it to like government action or corporate action? Well, I think that there's an action that everybody can take, which is what you spend your full-time job on. Before I founded Frost Methane, you know, I worked in various other climate places as an employee, which got me the knowledge base to be able to do this. 
So I do think that there is, you know, lots of things that people can do as their as their full-time job. And right now there's a huge number of companies that are hiring all sorts of skills, right? Like not just engineering, right? Like business and marketing, right? And accounting and like finance. Oh my God, finance. Don't get me started on how important that is, right? I think every skill set can absolutely get a reasonably paying job in this field. So I think that that's by far the most important individual action that people can take. I also think that there's like really important policy actions. Like at the end of the day, if carbon markets didn't exist, my company wouldn't either. I would probably be doing something that like that would be basically saving money by increasing efficiency because increasing efficiency is always both a money saver and a climate change saver. But it's very different than to say that our whole society has this has this goal of reducing emission and we can do a lot more when there's a market <laughs> that's around to do that. So I think government action is incredibly important and sometimes that is related to individual action, right? So who is sitting on your public utility commission boards is something that people have some influence over and what do they think? Who gets put in power in places? So I do think that, especially in some some swing areas, like I think in California, it's less important, but participating in that public commentary, like well thought out public commentary on new policies that are coming out. I think all of that is like very important, especially if you have any kind of expertise in that. I happen to not have the ability to vote in this country anyways, but <laughs> but I, I'm sure most of the people listening to the podcast do. What would you say in in the process of you starting this company or developing this company, there's kind of three pillars of you know what you need to have an impact. You have the policy, you have the economics, and you have technology, the big, large categories. Which would you say has been either the most helpful for you or the most difficult hurdle to overcome? Which one of those kind of three categories has been the most impactful? That's a really good question. So the fact that the policies already existed, like this company wouldn't, no matter the technology, this company wouldn't have existed without the policy. So I think that's the fact that carbon markets existed. And some of it is policy and the volunteer ones are not exactly policy, right? They're almost grassroots. Well, the grassroots individuals are actually companies, but whatever. So I think the policy has been by far the most important. I think the technology is important, but if our technology was a little bit suboptimal, like I think there's still things that we could have done. Like our tech team is excellent and I love them. But I do think that the pol- like if the policy didn't exist, the digital company. So that one is, that one is by far the, the, the easiest. And there's there's lots of like, surprisingly hard things that like I didn't anticipate to begin with. So for example, there's some gray zone around the mineral rights, right? So if this methane is coming out, well, wait, is that a natural gas resource? And like, what royalties do we need to pay those people? And how do we find those people, right? So there's stuff like that of like calling lots of uh, county courthouses in places I've never been to, to find out like what's the right, and, and this regulation varies by state, so there's been a lot of like interesting legal things that end up affecting this that have been like very, very tedious to to detangle and to figure out who these people are and what do we need, what agreements do we need with them. So I think, ah. so there's two things here, right? On the one hand, we're really good at the tech, right? And so we did this. It's it's predictable. It's It's not easy, but it's like predictable. We can execute on it. We've got a lot of experience, right? And then there's all of this. There's some legal and some policy stuff that we didn't exactly expect, but we also wouldn't exist here without the policy team. So go figure. The most important thing, though, is an amazing team, because without an amazing team, the company wouldn't exist either. Actually, team, then policy. Gotcha. I love it when especially CEOs or executives come on the podcast and they emphasize just how important their their core team has been in developing their company. I just think that makes 
makes it very personal for people to have that connection to their impact. Oh, absolutely. Like I, I, I have a goal of being by far the, by far the least uh, smart person on my team and I'm doing great. Everybody on my team is much more talented and interesting than I am. It's fabulous. Fabulous. That's awesome. That means your company's in a great spot, I guess. It's one of the benefits of being CEO, right? You, you, if you want to be the stupidest person in the room, will you get to hire people that, that, that will make it true? It's fantastic. <laughs> That's awesome. I have one last question for you today. I feel pretty safe in saying, especially after this conversation, that frost methane is pretty exclusively a climate company. That's what you guys are working on. So do you think, based on your experience, that we can reduce the emissions that we need to in order to meet the goals of like the Paris Agreement and the IPCC? Do you think we can do that? Depends what goal you're thinking about. You know, if you're thinking the 1.5 degree goal by 2030, I don't think so. Um, and I don't mean this to be to be a pessimist. It's just practically speaking, right? Change and especially infrastructure change just takes a long time. And there's been lots of heroic effort by technologies and policymakers and project developers and financiers. And, and the transition is happening much faster, but I don't believe we'll hit 1.5 degrees. Okay. That's a fair answer. I'm holding out hope. You know, we can't give up hope. We got to keep working towards yeah. it. Obviously you haven't given up hope because you're still working on it too. But yeah, I think we still need to keep working on it. Yeah, and there's no magical thing that happens at 1.5 degrees. It's a very useful goal to reduce the kind of extreme events effect. But if we had 2 or 2.5, like, you know, and then maybe we start sucking the CO2 out of the atmosphere so that we eventually reach 1.5, I think there's lots of scenarios that are fine, even if we overshoot, right? And I, I do think we'll, I, I am in general an optimist, but I do think that the chances of overshooting are, are reasonably large. That said, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be by 2030, maybe it'll be by 2050, right? Um, so I think that the more people will work on it, the more likely we are to hit that. And I think the 2030 uh, deadline is, is nothing is set and sold there. And the 1.5 doesn't necessarily keep feedback loops. It's just that's the area where scientists feel like it's the least likely to kick any of that off. But I think we all should be working to make it to two, for example, right? So I don't uh, I don't want to be negative regarding that. I don't think we'll hit the the most aggressive of the goals. We still get a lot if we hit the second or third most aggressive one. So I definitely encourage everybody that really cares about the problem to to work on it because the way the difference happens is with a lot of people putting 40 hours a week into it. I think that's a perfect place to end our conversation for today. Where can listeners find you and Frost Methane to learn more about this? You know, we're pretty, we're pretty heavy. There's still a little bit of our website. We definitely use LinkedIn. And as our team grows, uh, we'll be putting more effort into communications. Um, you know, for now, we're just like sites, sites, sites. And if anybody listening has a methane source that they would like for us to come and mitigate, of course, we do this for free. In fact, we share money with the owner of the land. Um, so if anybody's got, I don't know, an old mine on their land, right? The abandoned mines, they still, they still emit a lot or an old landfill or whatever, a natural source definitely contact us because we're interested in sources large and small as long as they're continuous uh we'll come out and do it so yeah definitely for anybody that has a methane source definitely contact us perfect is there anything you want to add before we sign off here everybody that wants to have a role to play in solving this can absolutely have a role to play um and so yeah definitely i sometimes hold office hours for people wanting to switch their jobs into this 
So definitely don't hesitate to contact me if you're if you're like if if somebody is looking for particular advice on on how to get into how to get into the space, right? Because I think that there's really room for all skill sets. Well, thank you so much, Olia. This has been a pleasure talking to you and learning about frost methane and everything that you guys are working on. Thank you. The feeling is mutual. And thank you for running this podcast. This is amazing. Of course. All the best to you and your team. Best of luck. Hope you have a very successful and prosperous 2022. (laughs) Thank you so much. Well, I had a lot of fun with this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you found it interesting. I'm looking forward to doing a carbon markets bonus even more now. I find it so fascinating how we can interact with the world around us to create a market around basically nothing that's actually tangible. As always, your feedback is welcome. You can find all of our social media and our email newsletter in the show notes. We would love for you to join us on that. Tell us what you think of the show, what you want to see more of. Links to Frost Methane are in the show notes as well. That's all I've got for you today. Stay innovative. I'll see you next week.